Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. This is Kirsten Lopez, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we'll be chatting with Cassie Rippey, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Coquel Indian Tribe in Oregon. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> Completing our group today is Emily Long and Dr. Chelsea Slotin. Thank you so much for being here, everyone. Always happy, happy to be here. Fantastic. So, Cassie, if you would like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about the work that you do. Sure. Hi. So, um, my name is Cassie Rippey. I am the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, or TIPO, for the Coquel Indian Tribe down in Coos Bay, Oregon. Tribal Historic Preservation Officers, for those that are unfamiliar, um, our job is to first take over the role of SHPO's, State Historic Preservation Officers, on tribal lands. Our job is to do cultural resources compliance on tribal lands. We also, I also do cultural resources compliance off of tribal lands. I'm also the tribe's archaeologist and NAGPRA coordinator. Um, and That's a lot of different hats. Jobs. <laughs> um, I've also been over the last four months now uh, operating as the planning section chief for the tribe's COVID response. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so that's just just a brief who I am and what I do. As as Emily mentioned, I'm going to second the that's a lot of hats statement. Yeah, yes it is. <laughs> so hats off to you. <laughs> so I'd have to ask. So as um, more specifically, your role as the the tipo. I'm, I've been surprised with how many of my fellow colleagues in general don't necessarily understand the role of a TIPO or the importance or the fact that it's the law to yeah. consult, um, whether with uh, a representative or and or uh, tribal TIPOs. Would you mind getting into, like, specifically when you're working as a TIPO, what do you do? Sure. Well, so first I'll preface that not all tribes are federally federally recognized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Indian tribe is a federally recognized tribe. And not all federally recognized tribes have TIPOs. Mm -hmm. Uh, To qualify for TIPO status, you do have to be a federally recognized tribe. Um, So there's that. Um, The other thing to kind of qualify is that not all TIPOs do exactly the same work. Um, most TIPOs have a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. Not all TIPOs are archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Um, so every every TIPO office works just a little bit differently. Um, basically, so we are set up under, uh, through the law, under the National Historic Preservation Act um, and through an agreement with the, the National Park Service. Um, and then appointed by tribal council to our positions. Mm-hmm. Um, my job, at least where it falls under what's required under the law, is that consultation piece. So um, if there is a large federal project or e- any size federal project, um, somebody wants to um, dredge in the bay, uh, they need a permit from the Army Corps. And so under that permit, they have to consult with the tribes under NEPA, under the Clean Water Act, under National Historic Preservation Act, and under a whole suite of other um, federal laws and regulations. And so they send us notice, and then we do consultation through that way. Um, We also consult on state projects, local projects, um, internal tribal projects. not all tribes have the same process for how they get notification or how they do consultation. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and there's also uh, differences between uh, how consultation happens at at some of those levels as well. So there's uh, the big G consultation is is consultation happening with tribal council, um, government to government. So that's decision maker to decision maker, or is it happening on the the staff level, a little C consultation or coordination, um, which is most of what what we do and where most of consultation in the early stages and, and planning stages and culture resource review happens. Um, and a lot of that gets confused for big con big C consultation. People will say, mm -hmm. well, we sent a letter. Um, so we consulted. Well, a letter is not consultation. Yeah, <laughs> so like needs to be more. It needs <laughs> an active engagement okay. there. Exactly, yeah. So the law actually requires um, meaningful good faith con consultation. And what meaningful good faith consultation looks like is going to be different for every tribe as well. Um, but it, at the very least is um, having conversations. It's it's not just, oh, we're doing this. Thanks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not consulting. <laughs> that <Yeah>. would be <laughs> One thing I'm curious about, um, because you did mention that you wear so many different hats, is how much of your role as TIPO is this consultation work, how much of it is in the fields, archaeology, how much of it is, I mean, obviously right now I'd expect it to be pretty heavily skewed towards COVID response. Um, yeah, it varies depending on the month. Um, typically, we I try to kind of budget uh, around 60% of my time for uh, TIPO compliance review, and then the other 40% is for other things, um, culture resources outreach, uh, culture and education, um, and all of those other things. But um, it, it could vary on, on any given month, depending on what's going on. Sometimes we have a really heavy caseload of, of projects coming in, and sometimes I spend, we may spend two weeks on just one project trying to, to sort it out. So it just kind of varies. Um, for the uh, this last four months or so, um, it has, like you said, it's it's um, been pretty heavily skewed away from some of those things. Um, and I have been spending about 80% of my time um, responding to the pandemic, trying to make sure that our community is safe, mm -hmm. that we have that. PPE, that we are um, making sure our children are still being educated, that our staff have the support to do their work, to educate their children while doing their work all at home, um, and supporting each other um, mentally and emotionally mm -hmm. as well. So that's about 80% of my time has been doing all of that um, since the pandemic hit. Understandably. Have you guys been allocated gov the government funding yet? We received funding through the CARES Act recently. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yes, we did. That's yes. awesome. Glad to hear yeah. that. That feels somewhat rewarding um, in being able to provide those things and being able to be a bit more proactive than I feel like others have been able to be in sort of providing those safeguards and education for your community. 
Yeah, the the tribe, we've had a really uh, successful response to the pandemic. Um, as planning section chief, I've been involved in almost every aspect of it. And so it's been a little bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but imagine. Uh, we, we were able to react faster than uh, most of the other tribes in the area, um, faster than the federal government, certainly. Um, and in many ways, faster than the state as well. Um, and so we were able to mobilize our emergency command center because we have a really good, efficient team. Um, and we were able to make some decisions about what needs to happen and how to keep our community safe really quickly and, and pretty effectively. We had some troubleshooting for the first week or so, um, but it's, it's really comforting to know that we have a really good group of people that we can re- rely on to um to do that work and to make sure that we are all safe and healthy nice and how does that interplay or articulate with the broader community because i know you guys are kind of nestled in a bit of a conservative area uh, Mm -hmm. to my experience down there can you speak to some of that as well yeah that's all very true um so this is a really special place um you know our, our headquarters are in coos bay Uh, We have a five county service area um, that covers a larger portion, pretty much all of Southwest Oregon. Uh, The Coos Bay area where we're headquartered and where most of our staff work out of and a large portion of our membership lives, it's it's a very small rural community. um, And, you know, one of the things that people don't always, they're not always aware of is that um, the Coquel tribe is not a reservation tribe or a treaty tribe. We don't have a large contiguous reservation in the way that many other tribes do. And so we have um, kind of checkerboarded properties, both in trust and in fee. So in just regular ownership, just like anybody else, um, spattered throughout our five counties. Um, So we really do have to coordinate very carefully with our our partner communities, Mm -hmm. uh, state, the cities, the counties, because, you know, we, ha- we do all of our shopping in the city and the county. Uh, most of our members live in the city or in the county. Um, and so while on one hand, we're practicing our sovereignty and responding in the way that's appropriate for us, everything that happens in the, co- in the county and in the cities affects what happens on our properties and, and within our government as well. So it's, it's a, it has to be a coordinated response um, in, in many ways. Uh, which can be challenging in some ways because we don't always see eye to eye. We don't always do things the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the county has is already in phase two of its reopening uh, process. The tribe, we're still, we're not, we're we're still working from home. We're mm-hmm. we're not talking about reopening. We're we're saying we're gonna wait. We're gonna see what's happening. Um, just when everybody thought that. It, you know, oh, maybe it's safe to come back. We start seeing cases coming here into the county and it's concerning. Um, so we're just, we're taking a, a watch and wait um, approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, we are experienced in how to work with our partners, um, with the city, the state, the counties, from all of these other things that we do, we consult with them and we partner with them on so many other things that, um, for the most part, it's it's um, it's a pretty smooth conversation to have. Nice. That's cool. It's nice to hear. 
out of curiosity, what other kinds of projects and whatnot do you, have you partnered with the county and state? Because it sounds like there's a pretty, pretty good relationship there. I'm just kind of curious the background on it. Some of the relationships are better than others. Understandably. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest biggest thing that we work with them on is actually um, for cultural resources compliance. Mm -hmm. 99% of the tribe's um, homelands are in public and private ownership. Mm -hmm. And so a a lot of the work that I do in particular and with our natural resources department does um, is in uh, managing the land being stewards of the land and of our resources in good ways with our local partners. Um, the county in particular is one that we work with regularly. Coos County is one of the only counties that um, complies in a meaningful way with Goal 5. Goal 5 is a state uh, rule that says that all local planning jurisdictions have to take into account cultural resources, historic, geological, botanical, et cetera, resources into their planning efforts. Huh. Uh, some jurisdictions have said, well, we don't have the inventory in our system, so we don't have to do anything about it. It's somebody Ooh. else's problem, yeah. which is <laughs> frustrating. Not, it's not what the spirit of the, of the rule was. Right. Um, but Coos County, we have, with our long relationship with the county, we have a, a different setup. So they don't have an inventory of resources still, um, but they um, they work with us to have all of those projects reviewed. So we've given the county basically an area of sensitivity map for the entire county that says if there's a permit in this area, we will review it and let you know if there are any concerns and what concerns need to happen and what coordination needs to happen. We help coordinate with SHPO where those things need to happen. We may provide monitors or recommend testing, things like that. So um, that's one of our biggest uh, coordination efforts uh, locally that we do. Um, and it's a, it's a lot of work um, just from the county. I think we probably average between 15 and 20 new projects a week just from the one oh, man. a lot of review so i'm sure it adds up very quickly throughout the year it does <laughs> yeah that's impressive I, i'm really happy to hear that the county makes it a goal I, I i unfortunately don't believe that's the norm for most counties or states for that matter no it is <laughs> not i mean we've, we've got five counties in our service area and only the one is in compliance Mm. Um, and you know it we do have to go through some occasional conversations about it but um and and the smaller city jurisdictions within the county some of them are in compliance and some are not Um, we have Mm. memorandums of agreement with a few of the more critical city jurisdictions um, including the city of bandon and the city of powers Mm -hmm. um, those jurisdictions as well but Yeah. um, yeah it's it's um it's a challenge throughout the state and not just throughout the country. Mm -hmm. Um, But Oregon in particular has some really strong uh, cultural resources laws and rules. Um, Not a whole lot of teeth to them, but it does have some really strong, strong rules and guidance um, that help both protect the resources and um, protect tri- or at least address tribal interests. Yeah. Why do you think that is compared to a lot of other states? Um, were there major uh, court cases or whatnot that pushed the 
state that direction or just different mentality in the state? I think that it comes down to the relationship between the state and the tribes. In the late 90s and early 2000s, the tribes worked together with the state to create the cultural resources cluster, um, which comes out of another um, state law, Senate Bill 770. Um, I can't remember the ORS number, but it's it basically requires the state agencies to work with tribes um, on cultural resources issues, on, on all issues, but on cultural resources issues in particular. Um, and so out of that came the, the, the um, a number of, cult- of cluster groups, education, public safety, natural resources, um, and then uh, culture cluster came out of that as well, eventually. And um, in 99 and 2000, uh, the tribes got together with several of the state agencies and really identified what needed to, to happen to protect those resources and to encourage tribal coordination um, and communication. And so um, from, from that longstanding relationship with the tribes and the state, those things kind of developed and, and have progressed since then. That's really yeah. cool. It's really fantastic. And it's one of those things, having done most of my uh, or lived out most of my career in archaeology to date in um, Oregon specifically, but throughout the Northwest, it's really interesting to see or hear from other people in the country where this is not the norm. Um, because as a practicing archaeologist in cultural resources or even to a more limited extent with universities, there is the tribes are almost always foremost in mind. Yeah. Somewhat depending on the company, for sure, but there's it's always something that that is um, in conversation, or at least there's discussion about how to approach any project um, with the tribes and talking to people work, working elsewhere in the country. It was just astonishing how that varies. Um, but we are at our 20 minutes for the first segment, so we will uh, take a quick break and be back again with Cassie here in just a moment. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you for hanging out and uh, rejoining us for round two. So, Cassie, we had just... Uh, had a fabulous conversation about COVID and the impact of that in your experience. And as both TIPO and as the COVID planning section chief. So from here, there's a couple other things that we were thinking about uh, running with on this uh, second segment. One we started to discuss and that is a little bit about the laws um, that cover um, what you do as a TIPO um, and how that applies to the cultural resources law and what archaeologists could expect um, with 
either working with a TIPO or other aspects of cultural resources that um, a lot of technicians may not really be cognizant of or have uh, an awareness of. Um, one of the things that I know that you've worked on in the past um, is the TCP or traditional cultural property. And I'd like to hear a little bit of your experience with working and creating TCPs for um, your tribe and uh, working with the state or federal government on those adventures. Sure. So the state of Oregon still does not have any listed TCPs um, on the National Register. Mm -hmm. uh, traditional co cultural properties or historic properties of religious and cultural significance. Um, uh, we also sometimes refer to these as um, storyscapes or kinscapes. Um, there's a whole lot of words for them. Um, in our area, they, TCPs have become a hot topic, mm -hmm. a challenging topic, um, primarily because there's, uh, it's, it's primarily pri public or private lands. Mm -hmm. uh, and people worry that having a TCP designation on or near their pro property um, will take away from their ability to um, to do what they want to their property. Um, it's a misunderstanding of what the National Register and what TCPs are, um, but that's really just something that is going to have to come through more communication and, and more public outreach. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a long, long hurdle that we're going to have. So we, at the tribe, we don't use TCPs anymore as, as a language. We tend to use um, culturally significant place, um, gathering place, um, traditional, just say traditional place or storyscape. Um, one of the storyscapes that we have um, documented but haven't moved forward with listing on is a well-known storyscape in uh, the city of Bandon, which is the Grandmother Rock storyscape. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. there's there's a little bit of information on it online, so I won't go into it too much. Um, but it, like many others in the, in the state, just because they're not listed doesn't mean that they don't exist, right? So these TCPs are present on the landscape, whether they're documented, whether they are um, listed, or, or whether they have a determination of eligibility on them. Um, so that's one of the misconceptions is that people think, well, I don't want it on my property. It's already there, um, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Uh, how is it handled? How is it addressed? How is it mm -hmm. known? How is it identified? Um, so uh, that's one of the things that we, we try to, to share with people is that these things have been here since time immemorial. Um, they're, they're not going anywhere just because somebody else owns the land. Um, but when we talk about TCPs for um, the more of what we do, um, it becomes a little bit of a challenge because sometimes there's some information that we is ne not necessarily appropriate to share. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if you want to get a TCP listed, you may have to share that information and that may not be the, the most appropriate way or even the best way to protect that. Yeah. Uh, so when we start thinking about, well, why aren't there any TCPs documented in, in the state of Oregon or listed in the state of Oregon? Um, part of it comes down to process. It's a, 
it's a challenging process. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy process. Um, and then there's the public and, and private landowners um, that we have to coordinate with. Um, and But largely, what's the benefit? What's the purpose to, to listing a TCP? Um, we've identified, at least for right now, we don't see a benefit in, in going through the, the TCP listing process. Mm -hmm. uh, we know they're there when there is a project happening in some in some sort of property uh, it gets treated and discussed in the same way that an archaeological site would even though it may not necessarily have tangible artifacts um, or things like that associated with it it might be um, a little bit more challenging to document for for cultural resources professionals that are not familiar with how to document TCPs, especially if they don't talk to the tribes first. Yes, I was going to say that is a very good reason why it is so important to do consultation among yeah. other things. But there's and, a and in a good faith effort consultation, not just like what the law says, like what you might be like. Yeah, well, I sent a letter. That's it. I can't reiterate that enough, and I'm sure probably saying too much, but it's like. <laughs> Yeah. Do do the work. <laughs> the number of reports that I get, it's just, oh, here's our, our cultural resources report. We did the survey two years ago. <laughs> we didn't know about the survey. Um, wow. We would have loved to be out there with you to show you some things on the landscape. There would have been important to protect some of those places, to protect maybe the spiritual health of the place or a view. Um, there's a number of reasons that we have tribal monitors go out with surveys, and it's, mm -hmm. it's not all just to have somebody there watching people right oh, exactly uh, well, and i know from a personal experience working with tribal monitors on wildfires is probably the most some of the most fun i've ever had and like running around on the landscape and they're like there's this there's this there's this and i was like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that will happen all the time um but you know the, the other thing is that the two that um, not only at the beginning, but when we get a report that's uh, finalized, it's like, well, here's your final report. It's like, well, we have a whole lot of comments on that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And uh, one of my first and biggest pet peeves is when I get a document that says culture resources report. Well, this is an archaeological report. It is not a culture resources report. You have touched on one epicenter, one part of, of cultural resources, but archaeology is not the be-all end-all of cultural resources. Mm -hmm. So we need to talk about those gathering places. We need to talk about the natural resources of cultural significance. We need to talk about the storyscapes and uh, all those other other things that, that go into that. And um, so I, I've cautioned people against a, using that title, but also um, archaeologists from um, narrowing their focus to just that tangible, physical, oh, I have an artifact. Here's, here's the boundaries of where the artifacts are. Mm -hmm. um, because that's not the only part of the significance of that property often. So um, that's one of the reasons that it's important for us to, to be um, informed about surveys from the beginning, um, because we are out there to help you identify and understand and document that resource in a holistic um, way that considers the tribal perspective, not just um, documenting it from the archaeological perspective. Yeah. Uh, when we see these uh, reports go through that say it's not eligible and it's only evaluated for criterion D, um, mm. missed three of the four criteria for eligibility. <laughs> I can't concur with an eligibility determination if you've only considered yeah. one um, aspect. 
And if you don't talk to the tribes, you may not necessarily know the tie to all those other uh, pieces. So, that's yeah. One of the things that I'm kind of excited about a lot of the perspective awareness that's been going on recently um, in the conversations that have been happening around racial awareness and cultural awareness uh, around Black Lives Matter in the last month or so um, is I feel like I've seen an uptick in not only increased perspectives in from the black community, but also other cultural communities, specifically the indigenous communities mm -hmm. in um, the US and in Canada. It, like how our culture traditionally conceives of white supremacy is incorrect in that when you are looking at some of these things such as what is valuable or if you're looking at uh, cultural um, resources, if the only thing that's being evaluated is what is valued by the white or dominant culture, it really overrides the point of the law because it is meant to preserve other cultural perspectives in other places. So if you're not doing proper consultation, you're not really following the, the, the spirit of the law is the best way to put it. Mm. Um, and so I think there's, I'm hoping uh, that this becomes something more of a conversation in the archeological community um, and that's something that I saw on the Society for Black Archaeologists, um, a drop in some of the conversation that came up around that tied in, for me anyways, a lot of the decolonizing uh, conversations mm -hmm. that have happened in the last number of years, but I feel like these are finally becoming bigger, more involved conversations, or at least I'm hoping. Yeah, we've, we've, um... We've had some really good conversations with uh, some agencies recently um, where uh, people are starting to hear uh, from other voices, um, from really well-spoken voices that, that um, highlight that these problems aren't just to one place or to one group. And um, they're starting to hear, I think, I hope, some of the the things that we've been saying for a long time um one of the people that i was talking to the other day uh they argued we were, we were trying to to change some language about how um material is collected um artifacts human remains mm -hmm. uh, funerary objects and uh, one of the responses that i got back when I suggested changing language that we don't collect human remains. Um, we may have to excavate them. We may have to uh, disinter them, but we don't collect. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And the response I got back initially was, um, well, that's scientific methodology. That's just the practice that we've always used. Mm -hmm. Well, you need to rethink that firstly, that language, but that paradigm you're supporting, colonial racist paradigms um, and we need we need to do better just mm -hmm. because it's the way that it has been done doesn't mean that that's how it should be done or that's how it is going to be done going forward um, and I, I hope that 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 got heard mm -hmm. um, we'll find out um, I'm guessing that a lot of it is just 
for our profession. I've, I've been guilty of this myself, um, thinking in such a very specific way, as you said, like, well, this is how we do it. And like, even thinking about eligibility and criteria and all of that, I think we have to, as a profession, have some more flexibility and try to perhaps take on more of the anthropological side of our profession, mm-hmm. be a little more open-minded um, in terms of a, a lot of this. And I think it's, these ongoing conversations are great because it's definitely expanding the way I've, I've thought about cultural resources in general. And yeah. I don't even know that it's just engaging more with the anthropological side of mm-hmm. archaeology, but moving away from centering you know, primarily white Western ways of knowing and ways of understanding that Mm -hmm. we provide as much status, um, as much value and as much consideration to other ways of knowing, other ways of existing in the world. And it can be really hard when you've spent your entire life living inside a box and you think that, you know, everything happens a certain way and you can play Tetris and make all the pieces fit together. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, the pieces, there are like 30 (laughs) other pieces I never knew about. (laughs) (laughs) It's really important, I think, to engage with and value, um, not for what they can add to our discipline, but for what they are in and of themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and how it can change the discipline to be something more valuable to broader society to everyone to every, exactly and not just quote unquote us or you know the the scientists or the uh the establishment uh the institutions um so that's that's always interesting um diving into these because it's something that i remember as a first year student, um, a college student and a first year grad student uh, coming in with um, a multicultural perspective, um, just how heavy that academia is saturated by these old paradigms that are so deep or steeped in um, what I would now call white supremacy and that's not necessarily a a phrase i would have used to describe it before um all of this it's just like the 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 ivory tower culture Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's something that growing up and having it is like because i've always wanted to learn know more about all the things and to bring more voice to um indigenous um people's partly because of my own ancestry and the the loss of voice um, that just the idea was in in my mind was to to try and return that. And then being in in the ivory tower as far as academia and talking to people and realizing that that is not the average perspective was an interesting um, experience is that most positive way I could put that. Well, and I, you know, I, even when people are think they're doing something for a good reason, um, it those problems still are front and center. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would use the uh, recent American anthropologist 
journal ex as an example of that. Um, the that journal cover. Um, after reading the explanation for why they put that journal cover on there and said, oh, we were trying to to um, sensationalize, shock people into understanding why it's wrong. It, um, it featured human remains, correct? Yes, it featured okay. human remains on the cover, which for indigenous peoples, many indigenous peoples, that's, you don't take photographs of that. That's not okay, yeah. let alone putting them on the front cover. Um, so the want to educate people about how bad that is, mm -hmm. we're going to do it to show people how bad it is. That's just as bad. Um, that does not help the problem. You, by doing so, you've harmed more people than you are probably going to help. Um, well, that doesn't make sense. It's like, no. we're going to do this thing to be shocking, even though we know it's wrong. It's like that, then you're doing the thing that's wrong, regardless. We're going to do this thing that is wrong so that we can prove that it's wrong. You know, it's wrong. Don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's awful. It's ugly. Um, and it's, it with, it's with Margaret Mead, correct? Because I know she's a, a bucket of issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other conversation. Cool. Well, we're actually perfectly up on our next 20 minutes. So fantastic Looking timing, for other archaeology maybe. podcasts? Um, There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archaefantasies and best myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Learn about the study of animal bones and archaea animals. There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. you for joining us for our third segment now. Um, we are going to dive into our final segment here. And um, I know, Cassie, there's some projects that you've been working on. Um, but is there anything exciting or something in your work that's made you happy recently? Or alternately, is there anything that you really um, want to take a, a nice soapbox and rant. Um, <laughs> um, I'll start with the projects that are, that are fun and happy because those are nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, we have been, had, had some opportunity uh, with the pandemic to take advantage of um, social distancing field work, which is so nice. Um, we can be on the field, just one or two of us, and um, practice social distancing, but still still do field work. One of those areas is in trying to document some of these sites that people call and say, oh, I think I found something here. I think I found something here. Um, recently, we've been doing fish weir survey. Oh, nice. Yeah, so we've, we've had some opportunities to get out there and uh, either try to relocate old fish weirs that have previously been documented, or to um, go out and check out things that somebody may have documented as, or called in and said, hey, I think I found a fish weir. What uh, is a fish weir? A fish weir is basically a, a latticework fence that's pounded into a river or an estuary to um, 
direct or catch fish. Um, yeah. Cool. And some of that has preserved? Yeah. So wow. uh, wood doesn't t- typically preserve in the archaeological record, right? But um, in that anaerobic environment, in that wet, mucky, muddy environment, wood preserves pretty well. Um, and so when you're uh, kayaking or boating or whatever out on at low tide, you may see some of these little pokey things sticking out of the water. And if you see it where it's kind of patterned, um, you might see it all in a row or you might see it kind of in a V shape or even in a box. Those are those may be fish weirs. Oh, um, that's cool. They can sometimes a tree can be a little tricky because, you know, a fallen tree, the branches might stick out and look a little bit like it. Um, we recently went to go check one out, a report of one out um, that turned out just to be an historic fence. Um, but it was, hey, now we've documented a historic feature. Um, <laughs> that's so awesome. That's cool too. Um, but, you know, some people think, well, but it's in water. Well, it wasn't in water 50 or 100 years ago. Um, so you have to keep in mind those changing environments. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we, we've been working with um, some of our local outfitting companies and some of our local excursion groups um, is talking about how to protect fish weirs when you're doing um, outdoor recreation. Mm. And so people say, well, where can, where's a good place to land? Oh, there's a good, nice mud flat. Like not there. <laughs> you don't land there because there's a sensitive environment and you're, you might crush something. Um, And some of those you can only see at really, really minus tides. Um, So we've we've been trying to help guide uh, safe places for people to land where they a they are safe. Uh, Health and human safety is paramount, Um, but um, also where they're protecting a resource. Um, so that's been a fun project for us to go through and say, well, these these are some areas where it's safe to, for you to land. These are some areas where it's okay for you to put in a boat launch. These are the areas where we just want you to stay away from in general. Um, and that's also been a good opportunity for us to talk about cultural resource protection in general, um, where we've said, you know, uh, this leave no trace also means don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so pack out what you packed in. We also appreciate greatly if you pack out somebody else's garbage that you found. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but being a good steward of the land doesn't mean just taking out what you brought in, but it also means leaving those those remnants of our ancestors where they belong. Um, when you take one thing out, that's one thing that's not there to, to identify that site. That's that's one thing that's not there to help us understand that site. And that's that's taking something away from its resting place. Um, for, for the tribe, um, those things are not meant to be moved. And so um, whether it's an arrowhead or a clamshell or whatever, um, it's it's where it belongs. And so by removing it, you're, you're causing harm. And mm-hmm. so we, we try to have that conversation with people that, that leave no trace doesn't just mean take stuff out. It also yeah leave stuff where it belongs Mm -hmm. yeah people sometimes wonder why it's hard to find uh whole seashells on any beach and part of me is like well that's because there's too many people picking them up to start um (laughs) it's that impact that people don't realize it's like well it's just me and i'm like well there's also like fifty thousand other just me's that are doing the same thing exactly every single person that decides like you know what i'm actually going to leave this here because this is what makes this place special and moves on 
is a good choice and makes a difference. Actually, that that does make me wonder, um, has there been an uptick in vandalism or collecting during the pandemic in your area, Cassie? Just because there aren't as many eyes go out there. There has been an uptick in anti-Black vandalism, um, Mm. anti-Black matters, Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. vandalism. There has been an uptick in white supremacist Nazi vandalism. Um, My own property was vandalized um, twice. I'm so Mm -hmm. sorry to hear that. Seriously. Um, It's, it's, uh, rural communities, people have a tendency to think, oh, we're a small community. We're, we're immune is not the right word, but we're, we're exempt. We're aside. We're apart from that, but we're not. Um, it's a small rural communities are sometimes where it it gets hit really hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, so there's been that, that has been, um, really hard the last couple of months. Um, Mm -hmm. the city has been working really hard to try to combat it, but, um, not easy mm-hmm. um to archaeological sites though we we haven't seen uh, a whole lot of damage to them in fact um you know i mean aside from people just leaving all their trash piled mm-hmm. everywhere because you know parks have been closed and there's not as much staff out doing work so so trash cans are overflowing and nobody's mm-hmm. packing their stuff out that's our biggest issue that we're experiencing on sites right now mm-hmm. um, there's actually been up until recently, there's been a little bit less traffic, which has, has helped a little bit of the erosion problem. Yeah. Um, but with everybody flooding back immediately right now, it's just going to go right back to where it was. But um, my biggest, our biggest concern right now uh, with effects to cultural resources from the pandemic are the layoffs. Um, mm-hmm. Oregon State Parks has laid off 47 staff. Wow. Um, in, in response to the pandemic. And mm-hmm. one of my, you know, uh, the first response is that's horrible. Um, I'm so sorry for those people who don't have their jobs anymore. Um, but the, this, from a culture resources perspective, my first response is, um, then who's taking care of your resources? You are a land managing agency mm-hmm. you have a responsibility to steward those resources. Yeah. And by not having staff out there, um, that's neglect and neglect is an adverse effect. So where was that conversation when you were deciding to lay off 47 staff? Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm, I don't have an answer and it's, it's horrible in, in so many ways that, um, all of this is happening and we don't yet know what the full impacts are going to be. Um, but what we see from this is the tribes are going to have to pull extra duty. We're going to have to be out there patrolling these sites. We're going to have to be out there evaluating these sites, whether it's uh, damage from natural processes or, um, you know, wind, rain, erosion, um, or from people causing intentional or or unintentional damage to sites. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of that heavier burden is going to fall on the tribes um, and I'm back down to a staff of only two, oh, me and my cool. tribal conservation specialist covering five counties. Wow. Um, there are other tribes that cover those five counties as or some of those counties as well, um, but they have other counties that they're covering. And so we, we kind of have to tag team and yeah. say, well, you get this county, I'll get this county. Um, and so um, 
I'm concerned about what that's going to mean for the resource and uh, and for for these places that are uh, irreplaceable. You know, natural resources are non-renewable. We can't we can't replant these these archaeological sites, these sacred sites, um, mm-hmm. in many cases. So um, I don't know what that's gonna ha- what's going to happen with that. What you mean, like little debitage pieces don't grow into big boy points eventually? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'd imagine too. Uh, on top of all this, I- I've seen news articles where there are a number of companies trying to push through um, projects because they're technically giving the thirty day window. They're technically giving. Um, letters to the tribes but without acknowledging that all a lot of tribal offices are closed because of the pandemic um have there been issues with that in terms of yeah okay that's, that's been such a challenge so the achp came out at the beginning of this and said uh provided some guidance both to tribes and to federal agencies about how to deal with that you know mm-hmm. they said we can toll responses. We have the option to say, we have to press pause and come back when we have the ability to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, the cook, well, I have not told any responses yet um, through this whole process. Um, my responses are not as timely as I would like to be, but they, I haven't told anything yet. Um, others have had to. Um, I, have, I have some privilege in that I live in a spot where I have reliable internet access. Um, I have, I had the ability to take my work computer home. Um, I have the ability to do my work mostly from home. I don't have access to my ArcGIS system, which is a little challenging, but I can work around it. Um, others don't have the remote access to mm-hmm. their internet servers, to their actual physical databases or their documents. Um, one of the tribes in our area um, was fully closed down. They were not allowed to work wow. for two months. And um, meanwhile, the agencies are still saying, well, you've got a 30 day response, 30 day response. Um, others have said, well, you know, it, because of COVID, we're going to, we're going to expedite our response. Um, that's problematic in and of itself because got consultation still is, is a requirement. You you can't bypass that. Um, but, um, at least on, on my side, I I haven't told anything, um, but I still have agencies saying, well, um, we didn't get a hold of anybody or we didn't know, know what you were doing. Did you reach out and ask, um, don't forget that consultation isn't just a letter or an email. Um, and, you know, remember too, that we're pulling, we already wear a lot of hats, like you said earlier, but some of us that are still working full time are doing a lot of work. Um, like I said earlier, I'm the planning section chief for the tribes emergency response. Um, I, most of my time was spent on dealing with COVID and I was taking care of culture resources response and other things in between my um, duties for health and human safety. Um, health and human safety will always be a priority, mm-hmm. the number one priority. And so it should be for sure. Yeah. And yeah. so then we'll, we'll say, okay, 
you want to build a new house or you want to um, want us to review an MOA, I am happy to do that in between my other duties. You've just got to give me the appropriate time and you've got to give me the, the, um, the respect of uh, communication. Mm -hmm. um, an email today saying, here's the PA and an email in three days says, oh, here's it signed. If we don't have your signature by tomorrow, we'll assume you're, you're not moving forward. Um, that's not okay. That's not meaningful good faith consultation. Um, if you're not sure, make a phone call. Mm -hmm. uh, just ask. If you're not sure who to ask, call around. Someone can provide guidance. In the state of Oregon in particular, um, we have an agency dedicated to helping identify who to ask. Um, the Legislative Commission on Indian Services has um, a dedicated director whose job it is to tell you who to call um, and, and which tribes to coordinate with. And so they have been able to help us coordinate some of that. Um, nice. But it's, it's, it's been a challenge where um, agencies, some agencies are, are just not sure what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, firms are, have been hit by this really hard because it's, from at least from my experience, uh, CRM firms, um, some are not able to work. Some are, are pulling extra work because because of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and some agencies have been expecting them to take on the burden of consultation, which um, some are familiar with and comfortable with and some aren't. Um, so it's a little challenging. Um, but, um, you know, there's really no excuse for um, not doing consultation, whether you're in the middle of a pandemic or not. Mm -hmm. uh, consultation is, is about communication. We communicate to understand each other. And if we're not communicating, then we can't understand each other. We can't come to, to figure out what the needs are of, of each other or of the resource. Um, yeah. So consultation is 100% about effective coordinated communication. I'm Glad you highlighted some of the on respect of communication mm -hmm. and time. It's one of my pet peeves that I see, not just in archaeology, but overall, especially just being in grad school, is the respect of time mm -hmm. um, and giving someone enough time to go through a document or to, um, you know, do something or be somewhere where you're supposed to be and not be 20 minutes late. Um, to an appointment or a phone call and stuff like that. That's like, if you have it scheduled, trying to, to make sure, because that the other person, you know, may not have the time to just, you know, sit around and, and wait. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. that's a, a big part of that consultation is showing the respect and growing those relationships. Um, and they, that take time to establish. Yeah. One well, particularly, in the uncertain times that we're living in, you know, when schools are shut down, office buildings are shut down, like you don't know who's doing childcare. You don't know who's, you know, going mm -hmm. from working in a quiet office to working in, you know, a house or apartment with five different people. Um, yeah. There are people who have more time. There are people who are getting more done, but to assume that everyone else does not have limits on their time is just profoundly disrespectful. Mm -hmm. I'm just hoping everybody like 
a lesson that needs to, I, I hope, be embraced by by everyone is like cut everybody an enormous amount of slack at all levels. It's like everybody chill out. It's gonna get done. Just chill out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been kind of my motto when my own colleagues are just like, "Why aren't you done reading this yet?" I'm like, "Good lord, chill out. Don't get done. It's the government. Nothing's fast." <laughs> take a breath take a walk around the corner exactly yeah we'll talk about it when you come back <laughs> <laughs> well cassie is there anything you would like to promote i mean a big thing um if you'd like to tell people uh where to find you on twitter and whatnot and also if there's anything you'd like to promote in terms of websites organizations all that good stuff Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I am on Twitter, um, and Instagram. Um, my tag for both is Archaeocassiopeia. They are spelled differently. Sorry. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, if we're going to talk about like plugs, something I really want people to, to know, um, and think about right now is just because everything's kind of slowed down. And even when things aren't slowed down, um, doesn't mean things aren't still happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so be mindful of other people's time, other people's workloads, but also of what's happening in your community, um, both locally and at a state level. So um, our governments are still passing um, rules, regulations, things like that. So my big takeaway from right now is look at what's going on at your state legislature right now. There are a whole lot of things at the Oregon State Legislature that are coming through. They're going to have a huge impact on cultural resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so take 10 minutes, look at um, what's happening with, um, like, for example, the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. A great There's a lot happening that's going to um, affect cultural resources at a state and local level and on a federal level mm-hmm. um, that is not well advertised and and we should be um, taking our time to educate ourselves about. Yeah, definitely. I think we'll have some links um, in the show notes on how to find your representative and how to find uh, stuff that's going on in your state. Um, Vote in November. Oh, for the love of God, vote in November. Oh yeah. Protect the NHPA with your life. NEPA's already in trouble. Yeah. All of those things. <laughs> okay, let's think of something happy. What can we end with a happy note? Um... <laughs> On a happy note, uh, go ahead and check out Google which tribes are, are in your area. Yes. Federally recognized. Um, because there could be both. And check out, see if they have a website. Um, and many also have public libraries that are open not only to tribal public but to the community as well go read up about your local tribes Mm -hmm. that is a great idea and see what uh they put on because in the the portland area up here uh there's different presentations from different tribes as well as cultural demonstrations um that happen in the oregon and specifically in the portland area so i'm sure that there's a lot of that going on everywhere that's just not well advertised Nice. Well, thank you, Cassie, again, for joining us. This was a lot of fun and very educational, I believe, for so much of our listenership um, on what it is that Tipo is, does, and all of the hats uh, that can be worn 
And uh, you can find us, the Women in Archaeology, at Women Archies on Twitter. You can also contact us via email at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. Send us a message and let us know what you thought about this episode. And oh, yes, rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. And if there's anything uh, that you would like to hear on the show as well.